Well, if you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. I am excited this morning because today we are finishing our series on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. A couple months ago, we started the book of Ezra. We began working our way through that book, and we've made our way to the end of Nehemiah as we finish this series together. What we've been observing is the theme, God's restoring grace. God's restoring grace. We've seen that though the children of Israel and Judah have been sent into exile, God has brought them back. God has brought the nation of Judah back into this land. He's restored them. We've seen them rebuild the temple and reinstitute the sacrificial system. We've watched as they've heard the word of God taught and the people have been instructed on how to order themselves and how to be pure. We've seen how they've rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. They've established boundaries for protection as they wait for the coming kingdom of God. We've observed how Nehemiah has led them as he's come on the scene, the governor of this region, to deal with problems and difficulties that they're uh, dealing with as they return to the world and to this piece of land. All of this has been possible. All of these things have happened because God is a God who restores his people. And we've drawn significance from that church because what we've been reminded of as we've looked at these books is that God doesn't just save us from our sins. He doesn't just save us from our troubles and strife and problem and the penalty that we rightfully deserve. God continually restores us back to himself, even when we disobey him. The beauty of Ezra and Nehemiah is that we have a God who not only saves us, we have a God who continually restores us. Today, though, I want to turn our attention to the final theme we're going to be looking at with God's restoring grace, and that is God's restoring grace and leadership. God's restoring grace and leadership. This is a theme that's kind of been running in the background through both of these books of the Bible. We've seen in Ezra, the book of Ezra, how Zerubbabel, the son of David, brought the first wave of people back. We've seen the second wave through Ezra, the scribe, who was skilled in the law of Moses, who came to teach the people. And we've seen now with the third wave of people who've returned through the work of Nehemiah, this cupbearer who became governor. At work in each of these kinds of scenes and work that's happening in these books is that God is establishing godly leadership through which he is accomplishing his purposes. Whenever you hear the word leadership or talk about leadership, there's a lot of different uh, thoughts and theories about leadership. What is good leadership? What comes to your mind when you hear the word leader? Maybe for some of us, it's a, a CEO sitting at a big desk on top of a huge tower. Maybe for others of us, it's an army or a military kind of term where it's a general leading the troops. Or maybe when you hear the word leader, it's not a type of leader, but it's a person who's been significant in your life, who's had a great impact in you. Sadly, maybe some of us, when we hear the word leader, think of somebody who's hurt us or who's disappointed us deeply. What I want to show you from Nehemiah 11, 12, and 13 is why godly leaders are so critical for our lives. But I also want to show you two marks of what godly leaders must be if they're going to make the impact God has designed them to make. Nehemiah 11, first I want you to notice in this passage as we talk about leadership, I first want you to notice the presence of godly leadership. 
in chapters 11 and 12, I want you to notice with me the presence of godly leadership. Look at Nehemiah 11, verses 1 and 2, as Nehemiah sets the stage for this idea. It says, Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Chapter 11 goes on to describe Jerusalem being repopulated. And what's significant about this is now not only have the people established the temple and the sacrificial system and the teaching of God's word, not only have they established the wall around Jerusalem, now they're actually repopulating the city itself. And so the city now has people walking and living and buying and selling There would have been kids running up and down the streets of Jerusalem playing. There would have been this kind of dull noise of the roar of a city. If you've ever been around a city and just kind of listen, there's this kind of dull roar in the background. Jerusalem once again has life. There's life to this city. People are doing things. People are moving. And this is significant because we see again that God is being faithful to restore his people But as this picture kind of continues, what comes into kind of focus is that there are leaders God is raising up to lead the people as this kind of hustle and bustle continues. So as you read through chapter 11, you come to chapter 12, skip down to chapter 12, verse 22. And you see the camera focusing on the priests and Levites. Now, before I read this and try to get these names right, Uh, What I want you to notice is that what Nehemiah is going to do is he's going to show you continuity and the line of the priests and Levites from their first return to the land from Zerubbabel all the way to the time of Nehemiah. So look at Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 22 with me. In the days of Eliashab, Joiada, Johanan, and Jadua, the heads of the families of the Levites and priests were recorded while Darius the Persian ruled. Levi's descendants, the family heads, were recorded in the book of historical events during the days of Johanan, son of Eliashib. The heads of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, son of Cadmiel, along with their relatives opposite them, gave praise and thanks division by division as David, that's King David, the man of God had prescribed. This include Mataniah, Bakbukiah, and Obadiah. Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers who guarded the storerooms at the city gates. These served in the days of Jochium, son of Jeshua, son of Josedek, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and scribe. What this shows us is that not only has God maintained and restored the temple and the walls and the sacrificial system and the word, God has also maintained a faithful line of priests and Levites. And you'll remember that the Levites were one of the 12 sons of Jacob, one of the 12 sons of Israel, who God established, God separated for the spiritual leadership of the people. The Levites were the tribe from which the priests came, and the priests were the men who led the the children of Israel in sacrificing and worshiping to God. These Uh, Levites and priests were not just spiritual leaders, though they actually led the entire kind of community. 
There wasn't kind of a secular and sacred separation during this time. These were one, and these men led in this particular season. What we see then, as the camera kind of focuses on these leaders, and as Jerusalem is being resettled, it reveals an incredible priority God has on establishing his people under godly leaders. And this is the big idea I want you to take home with you today that I think sums up these three chapters kind of nicely and neatly. Godly leadership is essential for kingdom advance. The idea that kind of strings this entire section together is that godly leaders are critical, are absolutely essential for God's people to advance the kingdom of God in this world. Now, we need to be careful because when we talk about godly leaders, we're not talking about worshiping people. We're not tra- talking about putting these leaders up on a hero, up, up on a pedestal. We're talking about honoring leaders, not worshiping them. And the way that you kind of parse this out is you recognize that both in the Old and the New Testament, leaders are important because they provide godly examples that you and I are to look to and follow. The way we avoid worshiping people and not honoring them, the way we honor them and avoid worshiping them is by seeing people as examples we're called to follow. I told you before that my wife, when we were first dating, was training for a marathon, 26.2 miles. And she was training for this marathon and she was going to run the White Rock Dallas Marathon. And so she got ready to do this and One of the fun things was debriefing with her after she finished. She finished all 26.2 miles and she lived to tell the tale. She's here today. If you want to come and ask her about her exploits, you can do that. Uh, But she did it. And it was really cool when she was describing the starting line. Because at the starting line, there were all these kind of groupings of people based on how fast they were going to run. And so you had 10-minute mile pace people and you had 9-minute mile pace people. You had 8-minute, 7-minute, 6-minute and so forth. And what you were doing at the finish, at the starting line, is you would gather around people that were going to run at the same pace you were, because that's what you trained to run, and there would be pace setters. There would be people in each of those groups that would lead you to make sure you kept a 10-minute mile pace or a 9-minute mile pace. Very helpful, right, if you're running 26.2 miles to have a team of people you're running with, and specifically an example that's kind of leading you. Now, I would submit to you that if you're running in one of those groups and one of those people fell or had a problem or had a difficulty, you would probably check on them to make sure they're okay, but you would keep going. You would keep running the race that was set before you. In a similar way, what God's leaders are meant to be is they're meant to be pace setters. They're meant to give us kind of a visual picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And the way you avoid worshiping those people, putting them on a pedestal that's unhealthy, is you recognize that even if this person were to fall or to make a mistake, I would want to tend to them, I would want to see to them, but I would keep going. I would keep running. I would find a new example to follow after, a new pace setter. You see, the strength of any church then is found and whether our church has godly examples sprinkled throughout our body that can show people at different seasons of life what it looks like to follow Jesus. So we need 
to raise up godly husbands that can show other husbands what it looks like to love their wife as Christ loved the church. We need to raise up godly senior adults, our seniors who can show our church what it looks like to finish well, what it looks like to be faithful in every season of life. We need to raise up godly moms who can show other moms what it looks like to pour their lives out on their children and their husbands. We need to raise up, for example, godly young adults that can show teenagers that it's cool to follow Jesus even in your 20s. I'll tell you one of the reasons that's important to me as a, as a dad is because right now my children think I'm pretty cool. I've got them, I've got them fooled, okay? My 10-year-old, my 7-year-old, my 3-year-old, they think I'm pretty cool. But there's a possibility that there's coming a day when one or more of them may not think I'm the coolest thing in the world. I know that's hard for you to believe, but teenagers don't always think their parents are cool or know what they're doing. You know what I'm going to need in this church? I'm going to need some godly 19-year-olds, 21-year-olds, 25-year-olds who can come along my 15-year-old when he thinks I'm crazy and say to him, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. To pour into my son's life in such a way that it makes him look back at what I say and go, maybe dad does know what he's talking about. Here's the principle, church. Listen to me carefully. People in the church need more than just information thrown at them. They need more than just classes and programs. They need real people who are imperfectly speaking into their life, showing them what it looks like to follow Jesus. You need moms showing moms what it looks like to follow Jesus. We need dads showing other dads what it looks like to follow Christ. We need young adults showing teenagers what it looks like to follow Christ. We need that. Part of what this passage then calls us to is to ask, are we raising those kind of people up? Are we developing those type of people? Are we training and encouraging those types of folks to live out that kind of reality and to have a vision for investing in other people? Parents, I don't know if you've ever had the the joy of seeing someone invest in your child in a way where you saw it made an impact in their life, but there's nothing like that. I want us to continue to grow into being that kind of church that raises up those kind of godly leaders as examples and as pace setters for every season of life. But from this, in this passage, you do see two specific ways that these godly leaders lead. You see two ways these godly pace setters provide godly leadership to the people of God. The first way, I want you to notice in this text you see it, is that they are leading through reminding The first thing you see these leaders doing in this text is that they lead by reminding. Look in your Bibles at chapter 12, verse 27. Chapter 12, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites wherever they lived and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication with thanksgiving and singing accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. 
The singers gathered from the region around Jerusalem, from the settlements of the Netophalites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth. For they had built settlements for themselves around Jerusalem. After the priests and Levites had purified themselves, they purified the people, the city gates, and the wall. Then, verse 31, then I brought the leaders of Judah up to the top of the wall, and I appointed two large processions, notice these phrases, that gave thanks. One went to the right on the wall toward the dung gate. Now, what's important here is to note that the theme behind what these leaders are doing is that they are giving thanks. In fact, you see that three times in 1224, 1227, and 1231. You see three times in just this short kind of area of verses that the leaders were giving thanks to God. Gratitude, very, at a very basic level, is acknowledging the contribution others have made on your behalf. When I say thank you, to someone. I'm saying thank you for what you did or thank you for the contribution you made. Last week when we recognized our veterans at the end of the service, we said thank you. We said we see the way you've contributed to us on our behalf to protect and defend us. But this gratitude that the leaders are leading the people and giving to God gives way to a second theme. If the first theme that's woven through this passage is gratitude, the second theme is the word joy. Joy, skip down to 43, 1243. After they praise God and give thanks, look at what 1243 says. On that day, they offered great sacrifice and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and children also celebrated And Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. I love the way some of your translations say this. It says, the joy of Jerusalem was heard. Now, joy here is talked about in an Old Testament context. This is connected to praise or thanksgiving or giving glory to God. But it's important for us to note that this is the same idea that's discussed in the New Testament. In the New Testament, joy is clearly described not primarily as a feeling, but as a state of mind. Joy is a frame of reference. It's a a disposition we have in how we look at life. Joy is seeing life through the gospel. It's me looking at the world through the lens of what Jesus has done for me. Joy is a deep satisfaction and peace I have in Christ means my, my, my happiness and my peace and my sense of worth don't come from my circumstances. They come from Jesus. This is a significant moment because what you see then in these leaders is a direct connection between gratitude to God and joy before God. And here's the principle I want to give you this morning. Gratitude is the fuel for joy. If you want to have a joyful life, a life where you look at the world with a sense of satisfaction and peace and rest, we're not always raging, looking for the next thing, but there's this kind of settledness and happiness that you have, not in circumstances, but in Jesus. How do you have that kind of life? 
The only way you have a joy before the Lord is if you're regularly offering gratitude to the Lord. Gratitude fuels joy. What that means then for worship, especially in a corporate setting, is what we're primarily trying to do when we worship together as a body is not work each other up into some kind of emotional frenzy. Primarily what we come to do when we worship together as a body is to give thanks. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I think emotions are a part of worship. I think emotions and feelings are a byproduct of worship. But one of the dangers we face in American Christianity today is so often churches are making emotional expression the focus rather than the result of the focus. Gratitude, joyfully giving thanks to God, when I really do that and I get deep into my soul and my thanks to God, it brings, it wells up into emotions. Think of it this way. Imagine this afternoon when the Dallas Cowboys take the field. I would submit to you, hopefully, that their goal is to score touchdowns, right? Want to see a little bit more of that today than we did last week? Want to see them score touchdowns? Want to see them get first downs? I would submit to you that the Dallas Cowboys' goal this afternoon is not primarily to get the crowd in the game. Now, there's something about having home field advantage and the crowd supporting you and cheering and shouting and all those types of things. But, but first and foremost, they're not in the locker room going, okay, guys, how can we get the crowd really fired up today? What they're primarily doing is how are we going to offensively score and how are we defensively going to stop the other team? And here's what I would submit to you. If they get first downs, if they score touchdowns, and if they win the game, the crowd will get into the game. There'll be emotions. They'll be shouting. They'll be cheering. There's more cheering going on at Cowboy Stadium than there is most of our churches. There's people out there saying amen (laughs) to touchdowns because they're moved by what they're seeing. In a similar way, what we're called to do is not primarily get everybody worked up into this emotional frenzy. What we're primarily calling each other to do is to give thanks. And let the emotions flow from that. I would say this to you. If you are truly giving thanks to the Lord for what he's done for you in Jesus, there will be ways that God affects your heart. God affects your emotions. But don't put the cart before the horse. Here's why this is so important. What this passage teaches us is that what leaders, godly leaders are meant to do is to remind us of what is true and good. What these leaders were doing in this passage was reminding the people that they were called to give thanks to God because God had done so much for them. Godly leaders remind the people, ground the people and what is true so that their joy and their gratitude is not tied to a circumstance, but it's rooted in Jesus. I'm reminded of the famous leader, John Wooden, famous coach at UCLA that won over 10 NCAA championships. Interestingly enough, though John Wooden was an incredibly successful coach, he started every season in a very, very unique way. He didn't start every season by going through their offensive schemes and what kind of defense they were going to play. John Wooden at UCLA didn't start by bringing in all their trophies and amazing the new freshmen that were starting with them. 
Do you know how John Wooden started every year of basketball at UCLA? He started by teaching his players how to put on their socks. He said, guys, everybody get on the floor here. I'm going to teach you how to put on your socks. Because if you don't put your socks on right, you're going to develop blisters on your feet and you won't be able to play. After he taught them how to put on their socks, you know the next thing he did? He taught them how to tie their shoes. Incredible, right? Why would you spend time teaching an 18-year-old man how to tie his shoes? Surely he's gotten into college basketball knowing how to do that. He was concerned about ankles. He was concerned that the guys didn't really know what they were doing with care for their feet. And if they didn't care for their feet, they wouldn't be able to play. I think that kind of leadership is a beautiful picture of what's meant to happen in the church. Because every day throughout the week, we are often distracted from what's most important. I don't know about you, but it's that experience I would have as a kid when I would go to the beach and we would go out, we would set our stuff in the sand and we would go out into the water and we'd play in the water for a couple hours. And after playing a couple hours, my parents would say, okay, it's time to come in. And I would look up and I would always have this moment where I went, somebody moved our stuff. Anybody else have this experience? Who moved my stuff? Well, nobody moved my stuff unless they were playing a cruel joke of me every time I went to the beach. What was happening was we were drifting down the line of the sand, the beach line, so that our stuff didn't move. I was moving. Can I just tell you that that happens to us every single week in life? It's easy to drift from what's really important. What we need are leaders and examples around us that remind us that Jesus Christ is better. He's better than your job. He's better than your paycheck. He's better than that promotion you're wanting. He's better than your kids making the team or making the grade. He's better than anything in this world we could line up before him. I need people in my life. You need leaders and examples in your life to remind us of that kind of gratitude. So as we apply this truth together to our lives, the question is this, are you surrounding yourself with people who are grateful who are examples to you of what real gratitude and joy look like? Or could it be that some of us are surrounding ourselves with people who complain, who are entitled? Can I just tell you that that when I'm around people that complain a lot, it drains me. It's a draining experience. Because, Because criticism and that kind of critical spirit, it flows from a deep seated sense of pride that God's opposed to that says, when somebody complains constantly, there's a, there's a sense of pride that's informing that complaining in my life that says my life's not the way it should be, God, and you owe me. When I constantly complain, I'm shaking my fist at God saying, God, this is not what I should be getting. You need to step up your game. And can I just tell you, that the reason the Bible says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble is because that kind of pride reeks before God. It's offensive to him. Because when we shake our fists at God and say, you should have done more for me, or you should be doing this or doing that, and we just constantly complain, we totally miss the amazing gift of life and grace and mercy that Jesus has already given us. Be careful about the people you surround yourself with and these examples and these leaders that you open up your life to. Thirdly and finally though, I want you to notice that not only do these leaders lead through reminding, we also notice in this passage they lead through responsibility. 
They're leading through responsibility. Now, chapter 13 is where we finish the book of Nehemiah. And it ends in an unusual way because it ends with Nehemiah giving us a summary of three problems or conflicts he addressed as the governor of this region. Okay, chapter 12 ends with Nehemiah reinstituting the temple tax to pay the Levites so that they could actually lead the people in worship. Chapter 13 begins by, again, the word of God being taught and the people hearing the truth of God's word. But then in chapter 13, verse 4, we get problem number one. Problem number one was that the temple was being neglected. Look in your Bibles at verse 4. Now, before this, the priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was a relative of Tobiah. Now, if you don't remember Tobiah, Tobiah was one of the opponents that had been trying to frustrate the people of God. Verse 5. And he had prepared a large room for him. So Eliashib is preparing a room for Tobiah, where they had previously stored the grain offerings and frankincense, the articles and the tents of grain, new wine and fresh oil prescribed for the Levite singers and gatekeepers along with the contributions for the priests. Translation. This guy, Tobiah, that had been such a problem for the people of God, was being given an office in the temple itself. So he was like setting up his furniture and his own personal kind of desk in the temple to kind of continue to harass and oppose the people of God. Nehemiah was away for a while. When he comes back, look at verse 8 to see how he responds. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I kind of picture Nehemiah like chunking stuff out the window. Okay, So if you think Jesus cleansed the temple the first time, that's actually not true. We see Nehemiah here cleansing the temple. Look at verse 9. I ordered that the rooms be purified. I had the articles of the house of God restored there along with the grain offering and frankincense. I also found out that because the portions of the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing their service had gone back to his own field. Therefore, I rebuked the officials asking, why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and singers together and stationed them at their posts. Then all Judah brought a tenth of the grain, new wine and fresh oil into the storehouses. I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses the priest Shelemiah, the scribe Zadok, and Padiah of the Levites, with Hanan, son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, to assist them, because they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for distribution to their colleagues. Remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for those, for the house of my God and for its services. So the first thing that begins to happen here that Nehemiah has to address is they begin to neglect the worship of God. Nehemiah very sternly confronts them. He throws this guy's furniture out. He reestablishes the tax that provided for the Levites and they began to worship again in the temple. The second conflict we see in this passage is the conflict that the Sabbath was neglected. So if the first thing was that the temple was neglected, the second thing I want you to see in this text is that the Sabbath was being neglected. Look at verse 15. At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys, along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, so I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. 
I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all this disaster on us and on the city? And now you are rekindling his wrath against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So here's his solution. When shadows began to fall in the city, gates of Jerusalem, just before the Sabbath, I gave orders that the city gates be closed and unopened until after the Sabbath. I posted some of my men at the gate so that no goods could enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside Jerusalem, but I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. After that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the city gates in order to keep the Sabbath holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. So again, the people are beginning to drift. They're beginning to be distracted. Nehemiah brings them back. The Sabbath was important because that day of rest reminded the people that they were people and that God was God. You see, in order to take a day to rest, you had to stop working. You had to stop kind of observing the normal things that you did. And you had to trust God to keep everything together. The reason Sabbath and rest is important for your soul is this idea of working 24-7, 52 weeks a year is not good for you. It's, it's this kind of malaise that's fallen over people's eyes that makes them think that they're God when they're not. The Sabbath and stopping and resting like we do on Sunday is when we come together and say, God, you're God and we're not. So the first thing that we see is that the temple's being neglected. The second thing is that the Sabbath is being neglected. And the third thing and final thing I want you to see in this passage is that marriages were being neglected. Look at verse 23. Nehemiah 13, verse 23. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other people, but could not speak Hebrew. Notice Nehemiah's response. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. I can tell you as a pastor, I felt like doing this a few times. Curse, beat, pull out their hair. I forced him to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as your wives for your sons or yourselves. Notice Nehemiah's rationale. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God and God made him king over Israel. Yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women. Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of, son of the high priest Eliashib, had become a son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood as well as the covenant of the priest and the Levites. So I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and Levites. I also arranged for the donation of wood and the appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, with favor." All three of these conflicts result in Nehemiah fixing them, reestablishing the people, whether it was marriage, the Sabbath, or the temple. But what we need to recognize is what Nehemiah models for us is that as a leader, he takes responsibility for the problems in front of him graciously but firmly. 
Now, it's important that we recognize that part of what godly leaders are meant to do is to not pass responsibility to someone else. They're to take responsibility themselves. And this is important because in our day, responsibility is increasingly becoming something people don't want. Want to blame somebody else? Or happy to let somebody else take the burden or the brunt of things? Very few people are willing to take responsibility themselves. I was thankful that Seth and Noah's school last year were teaching the kids values. They were teaching values and each of the boys had different values and different groups that were in. And my son Noah was in the responsibility house at school. And so Noah's a very literal, very sharp kid. And he came home and I said, so Noah, what does responsibility mean? He said, daddy, responsibility is taking care of things that need to be done. Like that, taking care of things that need to be done. What we need from leaders and examples in our lives is not just a willingness to take responsibility. Notice what's implicitly connected in this definition. It's knowing what needs to be done. See, part of what a godly leader is meant to do in our lives as the church, godly examples, what they call us to is to focus on what's most important, to give ourselves to things that really are gonna honor the Lord, are gonna last. As I said a minute ago, it's so easy to be distracted by a thousand other things, but godly leaders and examples help us to do this. I watched this happen last night in a college football game. I don't know how many of you watched the OU Baylor game. Anybody watch that game last night? I know the Baylor fans are sad this morning, but you have to admit that was an incredible football game. If you didn't watch the game, very simple. Uh, Baylor scored 28 points in the first half and they did not score another point. Or actually, they scored, a, they scored a field goal in the second half, I think, but that was it. But what was amazing to me about watching that game was that in the second half, down by a lot of points, the OU quarterback took responsibility. If you watched what happened, if you watched the highlights from the game, not only did he throw for a lot of touchdowns, the guy ran for over a hundred yards. I don't know about you, but running quarterbacks typically have a small shelf life because if you run as a quarterback, you're going to get hit a lot. And that guy took hit after hit after hit last night. But you know what I observed is he believed, especially because of some of the turnovers that were on his watch in the first half, that he had to will his team to victory. He had to take responsibility for moving his team forward. He knew it needed to be done and he took hold of it and made it happen. You and I need godly leaders that are not afraid to take responsibility. They're not afraid to stand up and make decisions and lead, albeit imperfectly at times, albeit with mistakes. We need godly leaders that are going to do that. Part of this is important because in the home, men, as we read about in our life group this morning, Ephesians 5, 22 through 31 tells men that you're to take responsibility in your homes. Why are you called to take responsibility, men? It's because God is going to hold you accountable for your home. He's given you a sacred trust, a sacred responsibility. But there's also this kind of responsibility in the church. God has called the pastors and the leaders of this church to take responsibility, to lead. And it's why I am so thankful to be a part of a church that's willing to pray for her leaders. Last week, we finished praying for 40 days consecutively, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
And one of the things I want you to know, church, is during that 40 days, I felt you praying. I felt it in my soul as I looked ahead to the future and and dreamed about what our church could be. I felt it in my sanctification as I wrestled with my sin. I felt a renewed energy to holiness and to obedience to the Lord. I felt it in my relationships with other leaders as we encouraged each other. I felt you praying for me. And I want you to know how thankful I am for that. But what this passage tells us is that because our leaders are men and women who are called to take responsibility, we need to be people who are praying, desperately praying for our leaders. Godly leaders are essential for kingdom advance in this world and godly leaders or what I believe God has given this church. It's interesting though, as we take a step back from the book of Nehemiah, as it finishes, that Nehemiah doesn't end with a fairy tale ending. Did you notice how it just ended? It didn't end with Nehemiah riding off into the sunset on his horse. It didn't end with the people of God praising and worshiping. He could have ended it that way. Nehemiah ends his book by saying, we got problems in this place. <laughs> We got temple being neglected. We got the Sabbath being profaned. We've even got marriages. We're drifting right back into the mess that we were dealing with in the book of Ezra. We got problems. Now, why? Why would God inspire Nehemiah to end his book that way? It's one of the reasons I love the Bible because the Bible is not a book of fairy tales, the Bible meets us in reality. And the same problems these people had in Nehemiah 13 are the same problems you and I have today. Nehemiah 13 creates, as it were, an awareness that something else is coming. That we need something else to fix all this. That as good as the temple is and as good as sacrifice is and as good as the wall is, there's something else we need from God. So what we're meant to do as we finish the book of Nehemiah is we're meant to stand back and just kind of take a step back and be amazed at a God who would restore his people, who would love his people in spite of, in the midst of this kind of brokenness and disobedience. This is the same God who loves you and I today. In this midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sin, in our rebellion, our disobedience before God still loves us that though you and I have lied and disobeyed our parents and held on to lust and pride in our hearts, though we've committed the same sins these people have and more, God still loves you and God still loves me. And the way we know that is because God sent Jesus to this world to die for us. He sent him to take our place, to take the punishment that you and I should have been given because of our sin. Jesus takes all of that on himself and more so that when he dies on the cross, he takes the penalty and the punishment that you should have been given and I should have been given. And when Jesus rises again on the third day, he rises to say, you can experience forgiveness and grace. You can experience this kind of restoring grace that we see in Nehemiah. But it only happens if you repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, what Nehemiah 13 ends with is a call to get right with God, to turn from your sin and trust Him. Coming to church won't save you. 
being in a Christian family won't save you. Helping little old ladies across the street won't save you. The only thing that can save you is turning from your sin and trusting Jesus Christ. What we're holding out to you today, if you don't know Jesus, is that he can forgive and restore you. During our time of response here in just a moment, if you've never placed your faith and trust in him, we'd invite you to do that. Would you pray with me, please? Father, in Jesus' name, we give you thanks. We give you praise, God, though we see how the book of Nehemiah ends, though, God, we so often make the same mistakes and more, God, you love us. You sent your son Jesus to die for us and to rise again. God, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you. I pray that during this time of